Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world. We are coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Yochi Driesen, joined, as always, by my colleagues Jen Williams, Zach Beecham. We're going to be talking about a couple of vastly different things today. We're going to be talking about North Korea, and we're going to be talking about Israel, and more specifically, the Western Wall, the holiest site in Judaism, probably the most contested bit of, small bit of territory that exists in the world. But we'll start with North Korea. We had, in the last couple of weeks, this sort of really interesting collision between geopolitics and just basic humanity. We had the return of Otto Warmbier, this American student who went missing. They thought maybe he was alive being kept by North Korea. He came back after about 15 months of captivity, and he was in a coma and died shortly thereafter. It's obviously an enormous human tragedy for the family. I mean, that goes without saying. But I think what is worth focusing on is that this kind of reminds us of a lot about North Korea that matters. We think about North Korea, it's a nuclear state that's terrifying. It's run by a guy who is alternatively kind of an easy Bond villain to laugh at, but also irrational and scary. But we don't know much about it. It is kind of a black box. We think maybe China knows. We think maybe Russia knows. But we ourselves as a government don't seem to know very much. Obama had harsh rhetoric towards North Korea. Trump has harsh rhetoric towards North Korea. And it's not clear that it's actually worked or what even a deal might look like. It's also not clear we have leverage to get towards a deal. And I want to just kick it off there about what it is that we think we're, we're learning about North Korea from the Otto Warm Beer tragedy, and also just from the broader controversy surrounding it that's been in place since Trump took office, the harsh rhetoric not yet matched by actual activity, tangible activity on the ground. What I find so striking about the Otto Warm Beer case, aside from the horror of the actual situation, is how little we understand what actually happened. He had these terrible injuries when he came back, and we still don't know how they happened. We don't know anything about the circumstances thereof. If this were any other country other than North Korea, this happening to an American would have completely transformed the United States' relationship with that country. The U.S. would have been demanding answers. There would have been a massive international inquiry and a lot of reporting going on trying to figure out what happened. And there has been, but at least in terms of reporting. But it's so hard to figure out because we know so little, as Yohi was just saying, about North Korea. And we know so little because our strategy towards North Korea has been to isolate it and cut ourselves off from it. And there are good reasons for that strategy. But it means you don't have very much left to do to North Korea and very few lines of communication inside of North Korea. Let's, for one second, just walk that back a little bit. Tell me, just remind me, what were the injuries he suffered when he came back What happened to him? We know he was in a coma. What else were we wondering? According to the doctors who took care of him when he came back to the U.S., because they're doctors, they were really careful about not wanting to speculate about how he had been injured. But he had extensive brain injuries. And they said that it was consistent with a lack of oxygen, possibly relating to a drug overdose. And I think that's partly what the North Korean government had said, that it was something to do with a sleeping pill that he had been given and had a bad reaction to and slipped into a coma. But that's basically all we know. I mean, we don't really know if it was an accident, if it was torture, what it was. And I think that's part of the problem. And so our colleague, Sarah Wildman, just interviewed one of the negotiators on the case who helped bring Otto Warmbier home. And, and he was saying, you know, it's it's really interesting because when they went to see him, they were basically stonewalled by the North Koreans. So Sweden basically acts as the U.S.'s interlocutor in North Korea because we don't have an embassy there. So Sweden is our consular protector. So Anything we need to do with the North Korean government, we go through Sweden. So the, I guess the Swedish ambassador or Swedish diplomat uh, went and requested to see Otto Warmbier, and they basically stonewalled him and said no. The argument they gave was that he was a special kind of prisoner, 
that he was a prisoner of war and under war law, apparently, that he was, you know, a different kind of prisoner and they didn't get to see him. First of all, that's bullshit because Yeah, I was about to say that's it's, complete nonsense. It's complete nonsense. absolute bullshit beyond all the legal reasons in terms of humanitarian law and laws of war, but also just that they considered him a special prisoner or a different prisoner is just bullshit. I mean, he's... So I guess we should probably talk about that too, about what it was that the North Koreans said that he did, whether we think he actually did what they said he did and all of that. Before we do, the question of torture has been what's hanging over this case because right. when, when he came back, what the doctor said more specifically was he had severe trauma to almost every part of his brain. I mean, that right. was kind of their main diagnosis, that his brain had just been horrifically, horrifically damaged. And I agree with you completely. They, they stopped short of saying what caused it. And right. they were asked every possible way, was he tortured, was he beaten? <laughs> right. And they wouldn't go there. And I, and I think it makes sense. Doctors are always cautious, especially are cautious if saying, sure, he was tortured, means suddenly there'll be this groundswell of anger in America that could actually lead to something concrete. Like theoretically, there could be enough outrage that Donald Trump, who feeds off of anger, might say, all right, I hear you. We're going to do something to punish these people. But their initial excuse was food poisoning. Initially, what they said was he ate something bad. He may have taken some sort of pill, and that put him into a coma for 15 months. And I agree. It's kind of nonsensical. Yeah, I actually want to pick up on that because that's a lot of what North Korea does. Right In the way that it talks and relates to the world, it says things that are transparent and absurd, almost comical lies. Like there's nothing you could eat that would cause damage to every portion of your brain. That is not possible. It is obviously not possible. They do it because they can, right? Because they don't need to provide a justification to anyone outside of their country that makes any sense. And inside the country, they control basically every source of information, so if the government says this American was hurt because he ate bad food and that destroyed his brain, a large portion of North Korean citizens are only going to hear that line, and many of them will believe it. Yeah, and I think, Jen, I'm glad you flagged this interview. It's our, our colleague Sarah Wildman did with a guy named Mickey Bergman, who's this sort of right. badass former Israeli paratrooper who was contracted by the family. This was not a U.S. government official. This was sort of somebody operating in a private capacity who went to Pyongyang in the fall. You know, as you point out, couldn't see out of warm beer in retrospect, says that was something that was alarming. In the moment, it didn't seem quite as right. uh, as problematic as we now know it is. The interview will be posting on Vox.com today, so readers of the site should come read it. If you are listening to this, first of all, subscribe, rate, and review. Secondly, come read the story. But there was one thing from the interview I wanted to just read to, to everyone here in the studio and everyone listening, because I think it's really revealing. So Mickey Bergman, one of his main points was and again, this is a negotiator contracted by the family when we didn't know as a country what happened to Otto Warmbier. He said there was a moment, he believes, during the transition between the, the Obama and Trump administrations where if Donald Trump or his administration had made some sort of outreach effort to North Korea that basically said, hey, we respect you. We know your government. You know, we'll pat you on the head like you might do with a small child. Maybe it would have helped. And, and this, was his, this was his quote. We could have been a little bit creative. We could have pulled a release of Otto. I'm not sure, but it would have helped. Then he said, I believe they needed something symbolic from the U.S. government, something they could use to say, okay, we've been recognized. So what's really interesting to me about that is not just the quote, I mean, not just that we're hearing in that the words of somebody who met with North Korean officials in North Korea, but what that tells us about North Korea. And it tells us in some ways, you know, Zach, you're making the point that they are kind of a black box and a lot of their own population only hears their lies. We're also getting a sense of how fragile they may feel, that they just want to be seen as a real country, I mean, seen as a government the U.S. and the rest of the world recognizes and they don't feel that way. Yeah. This week, I spoke with an international relations professor uh, at the University of Wisconsin named Jonathan Renshin. His research is about status in international relations, about the way 
that countries feel a need to be recognized and respected by other countries. And sometimes this even causes them to go to war over a sense of being lower down in the hierarchy or not getting the level of attention and respect that they get from other leaders. North Korea is an extreme example of status anxiety because they have none. They're a pariah isolated from the rest of the world with a very, very small handful of exceptions. And one of the regime's major goals is to gain some kind of status in part for this domestic legitimation, this need for people at home to see that they're being respected by other countries. It gives their leaders much more of a sense that they're in control, that they're really sticking it to the imperialist powers, which is how they portray the United States in their domestic propaganda. And even symbolic gestures when you control the media can be spun out to grant you much more sense of status with other countries and, most importantly, internally and domestically. Right. I think that also, that's totally a great point, Zach. I think that also just helps explain the drive to get nuclear weapons and to have a robust nuclear arsenal. People will often ask, you know, why do they want nuclear weapons, especially if it's making the entire world really mad at them and causing major problems with the U.S.? But a lot of it does have to do with status and basically saying, you know, we are a world power to be reckoned with and also that you can't come and push us around. And in some respects, that has worked, right? So in some respects, we can only do so much when it comes to North Korea and we can't necessarily just go in and push them around. And they have really strong conventional military capabilities as well. Um, Yoki, I know you are really deep into that stuff. Yeah, and I, I think you hit on something that's kind of vital to understanding North Korea, and it's worth just briefly taking a step back. We cannot do very much. Right. I, I think you summed that up completely perfectly. There's economic pressure, but we've already kind of ratcheted up pretty much as far as we can go. Not quite. It's well, close. We have. China has not. And and sort of what, what I want to just talk through briefly is that there, there's a connection between the two. The U.S. has sanctioned North Korea. They've sanctioned the leaders of North Korea, the military of North Korea. North Korean leaders cannot really travel. What the U.S. hopes economically is that China, which is the biggest trading partner North Korea has, will itself do something. And, and in that case, so far at least, they're not. Donald Trump came into office. He talked about, we might do a preemptive strike. If China doesn't handle it, we'll handle it. He kind of pounded his chest. Exactly. Ooh, ah. Ooh, ah. Exactly. <laughs> and then you wrote that great piece. He had talked to President Xi of China. And in 10 minutes, suddenly he realized, hey, wait a minute. North Korea is complicated. Maybe we can't do all that. To be clear, that's not Yohi paraphrasing Trump. That is literally, literally what the what president Trump said. said. Is after talking with Xi for 10 minutes, I realized it's not so easy. Something along those lines. And it's mind-boggling that the president of the United States is A, learning about a policy issue as complicated as North Korea in 10 minutes. And B, learning about it from the Chinese leader, who is nominally an American strategic rival in the region. The whole thing is just baffling. And it's even more baffling because Trump seems to have, he came in and he campaigned as this big hardline anti-China guy. And now he's crediting the Chinese, even in some tweets he sent out recently. He's like, the Chinese tried really hard when it came to fixing North Korea, but they haven't done it. It's not clear what they tried. They, they really have not tried very much in the Trump administration, or like ever. I'm always glad to be accurately quoting our president, <laughs> given given the nuance and eloquence with which he normally talks. So being able to capture that myself is really kind of heartwarming. And, it's and difficult. It's I'm, difficult. Pr I'm proud of you, yeah, really. Thanks, Zach. That's made my made my morning. But it is with, with North Korea. On the one hand, he is like a Bond villain. He's got the weird haircut. Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un, I'm yeah. sorry. The, the president of North Korea, leader of North Korea, supreme leader of North Korea, inherited it from his father and grandfather. He wears the weird suits. He's obese. He loves to watch The Godfather, as all dictators seem to do. When he took power, one of my favorite covers of The Economist of all time was a photo of him in sunglasses, and the cover line was, greetings, earthlings. 
<laughs> on the one hand, you know, he's made fun of in, in movies with Seth Rogen. If you have not watched it, don't lose those two hours of your life. But he is that mockable type of person. And at the same time, he is the sole person running a nuclear armed power. There is no rival to him. He kills members of his family when they annoy him. There's a case not long ago where he thought one of his own uncles, so a close member of his family, he saw as a threat. It's not clear how he killed him, because it's North Korea. But one theory that has traction is he tied him to a cannon and then fired the cannon. I mean, really think about that for a second. So this is the kind of person- It's like some modern Game of Thrones shit. Right. Like Ramsey Bolton. Right. There's Ramsey Bolton with with nukes. And then there was his half-brother that he had poisoned in Malaysia, right? With two female assassins who rubbed his face with VX nerve gas. Right. One of whom was wearing a shirt that said LOL. It just said LOL. Like, that's some cold shit. Yeah. So you've got that half of Kim Jong-un. Then you've got the nuclear part of Kim Jong-un, where they're working to develop missiles capable of hitting the United States, which no longer seems like an impossibility. Like, they are potentially, in the not far distant future, capable of hitting at least part of the U.S., California, Hawaii, with nuclear-armed intercontinental ballistic missiles, which is totally terrifying. And then even more terrifying, because it's something they have now, is Seoul and Tokyo are close in range of conventional weapons North Korea has. And and that's worth, I think, emphasizing, and we could all jump in a bit briefly— you can damage a city and kill a whole hell of a lot of people without a nuclear weapon. In the case of North Korea, they've got thousands of artillery pieces aimed at Seoul. Right. And some of the estimates are they could kill tens of thousands of South Korean citizens in a matter of hours. So a nuke is terrifying, but they don't need the nuke to do something terrifying to one of the closest allies the U.S. has. Right. And I think that goes back, and that's absolutely right. I think that goes back to kind of the issue that we were talking about earlier, which is our lack of of leverage over North Korea. So Zach, like you were saying earlier, you know, in any other case, if an American citizen had been treated this way, and we, you know, obviously don't know exactly how he was treated, but clearly it wasn't well, this would be an international outrage. This would be something that we would be launching full investigations and demanding answers from the government. But there's not much we can really do to twist the arm of North Korea. I mean, we like you said, Yolhi, we've already sanctioned them, everyone we can think of, in every way possible we can think of. And it, it doesn't seem to really make a difference in terms of getting movement from, from the North Koreans. We've had a really long history of trying to work out deals with them. And, you know, we had the six-party talks and we had these different kind of arrangements where we tried to come to the Let me table. jump in for a second. Say, say what the six-party talks are. I've forgotten who's Yeah, so the six-party talks were a group of six countries, um, North Korea, South Korea, Japan, China, the U.S., and Russia, who came to the table to kind of try to bring the North Korean nuclear program to a halt. There were kind of deals worked out where we would swap light water reactors. Light water reactors, those have nothing to do with nuclear weapons, just so we're all clear. This is in the way that the U.S. and some of the countries in Europe and Japan have have nuclear power plants for civilian use. That's what what we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. The deal, because, you know, a lot of countries who are pursuing nuclear capabilities will often say that it's for, you know, for energy use, for domestic use sometimes for medical use. Iran uses that one. So we essentially said, you know, we'll give you these light water reactors so you'll have the nuclear energy, like you'll have the domestic piece of that that you want, and you can, you know, allow an inspector to your nuclear facilities and you can, you know, turn over whatever sensitive materials and have people kind of check and make sure you're not making weapons. And it got really, really, really close to actually having a deal. And then at like the very last minute, I'm not sure what happened, but it just completely all fell apart. And so there have been multiple times throughout recent history that we've gotten kind of somewhat close to having a deal. And it always seems to collapse. 
And I think, again, it kind of goes to that issue that there's not so much that we can do punitively. There are some things that we can offer, but Again, North Korea has this guiding ideology of self-reliance called Juche, right? Uh, J-U-C-H-E, if you're spelling it. Basically, this like kind of overarching guiding ideology of self-reliance. And it's the way that North Koreans see themselves and see their place in the world. And it's kind of a long legacy of invasions and imperial, Japanese imperialism. We can do everything ourselves. We don't need the outside world. You know, we don't need anybody for anything. It's not true. They get most of their oil and gas from China and from somewhat from Russia. But it's this kind of posture, you know, exactly like you were talking about earlier in terms of like how countries and leaders like to see themselves in terms of status. And it's kind of part of that, but it's part of this broader, you know, we can do everything on our own. We don't need you. So it kind of helps explain why it's so hard for us to offer North Korea something when on the public stage, they're trying to say, you know, we don't need handouts from you. We don't need anything we just want recognition. And that's something they do to go back to your point earlier, Yochi. There's also like an incentive issue here. North Korea already built nuclear weapons. They have a nuclear arsenal right, right. now. Anything that we give them now would essentially seem like a reward for misbehavior, right? If the U.S. relaxes sanctions that were on North Korea prior to the nuclear program or gives it some kind of like enhanced status in response for rolling back part of its nuclear program— you send a clear message that it pays if you're a rogue state right. to try to start a nuclear program and get your own nuclear weapons. So the U.S. can't give up too much without doing serious damage to the idea that you should be in trouble if you develop nuclear weapons, which is one of the key ways that we prevent nuclear proliferation right. uh, around the world. And it's tricky because you need to give the North Koreans something. Right. At the same time, like you have to do something or you'll never— get anywhere. Right. Because the the other problem is that the more North Korea continues to expand its nuclear program, you know, they went from testing a bomb for the first time in 2006 to testing more advanced bombs more recently and now developing missile programs that can go further and further. The more they get, the less they seem likely to give up. Right. Back in the early 2000s and late 90s, it seemed like we might prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon altogether. Now, they won't. They say explicitly and repeatedly, we will not give up our nuclear weapons. And experts that I talk to seem to think that they actually are serious about this. This isn't a negotiating stance. You can't get them to give up the weapons they already have. So you're settling for restricting things like restricting missile development, restricting more advanced bombs. Freezing it in place, basically. Yeah, but that still preserves a nuclear-armed North Korea, which is not great from anyone's point of view. Yeah, and it's worth noting that the the president of South Korea, the newly elected president of South Korea, is in Washington today, today, Thursday. Uh, The previous one brought down and very literally arrested, which is kind of a remarkable sign of what happens in countries with functioning government oversight. We won't talk about our own. But the president of South Korea, in a weird way, is less hawkish towards North Korea than Donald Trump. The president of South Korea's belief is we have to acknowledge that they are not going anywhere. We have to acknowledge that their nuclear weapons are not going anywhere. And what we have to do is freeze it in place. It's containment, basically, by any other word, modeled on what happened during the Cold War. You can accept, even if you don't want to, that there is a country with nukes. They will not give them up. They're going to continue to have them. They'll continue to be strong because of them. And so how do you figure out how to not make it worse? And I think if we're being realistic about North Korea, That is the best case scenario. They're not giving them up. If we launch any kind of preemptive strike, they're going to level Seoul and they're going to level Tokyo. So then it becomes, what's the counters of the deal? And Jen, you pointed out, and I agree completely, I'm glad you did, that deals have come close and have failed. And I think the speculative question that's worth asking in some ways is, 
if we said to North Korea in some way explicitly, we acknowledge your nuclear program, we know you're not giving it up, let's talk from there, whether that might possibly, dangerous as it is, might possibly be a path forward. I feel like there have been top U.S. officials, I I can't remember exactly who, um, who have said, you know, on the record publicly, both current and former, basically that, right? Like they haven't said it directly to the North Koreans, said, hi, we're, we're happy that you have nuclear weapons, welcome to the club, let's sit down and have a chat. But they've basically come out and said— Welcome to the club. (laughs) It's a nuclear club. (laughs) I know. It's just funny. It's a rowdy club, but it's a club. It actually is the the phrase people use. Yeah, that is the phrase. Great. The nuclear club. Right. Like it's the cool thing to do that you get like your— Goes back to the point about status we were saying earlier, right? Getting nuclear weapons is really a way of showing that you're one of the powerful kids. Right. I mean, when you look at the Security Council, a lot of people with nuclear weapons happen to be the permanent five members of the UN Security Council. But yeah, I mean, I think— It's really interesting to kind of realize that, like I said, defense officials, top national security officials have said, you know, on the record, North Korea is not giving up their weapons. We've essentially given up that idea of trying to in any way roll it back or get rid of, you know, a a completely denuclearized Korean peninsula was, you know, the idea was the the big ideal, the big kind of golden goal we were working towards. And that seems to be just completely dead. And now it's essentially like freeze it in place, see what we can do. But even then, we don't seem to be having any success whatsoever in making any overtures. Comparatively speaking, Kim Jong-un's dad, Kim Jong-il, was pretty bellicose, but the son has dramatically ramped up missile testing just since he took power in December 2011. So given his uber-aggressive stance, and then on top of that, you need to go back to Otto Warmbier. In the wake of this, it's not exactly the perfect time to sit down and try to work out a great nuclear deal. I mean, perhaps it is. Perhaps, you know, they feel that they owe something, but I, I highly doubt it. One opening, though, because it, it's, it's worth noting, there are other Americans missing in North Korea. There right. are other Americans being held inside North Korea. Right. As far as we know, they're not in comas, but who the hell knows? As we found out with Otto Warmbier, we don't know much about them. But it's a good point that you're raising when we're talking, at least on the human level, theoretically, you can imagine something where somebody from the U.S., because this has happened in the past, flies to North Korea. Bill Clinton did that. Jimmy Carter has done that. Bill Richardson, the governor, former governor of New Mexico, has done that. Flies to North Korea, picks up some number, hopefully all of these missing Americans, flies them out, gives North Korea the pat on the head they want, and then maybe the talks start. What North Korea wants and what the U.S. has not yet done is direct talks. What North Korea wants is to sit down in a room only with the United States, not with other countries, not with China, not with the UN, not with Germany, just with the US. And US presidents going back to Obama, going back to George W. Bush have all said no. Donald Trump has hinted he was willing to do it. But that's interesting. Like that's in some ways the specific thing to look out for. Part of it is, do people come back? And part of it is, do you ever get to a point where directly US, North Korea, they're talking about nuclear program, they're talking about missiles, can you get to that point? I think it's a really good point that you flagged, too, is that Otto Warmbier is not the first nor the last U.S. citizen who's been captured, detained, tried in these sham political show trials and sentenced to six years, 15 years in these political labor camps. Like you said, there are three, I think, that we know of by name who are currently being detained. But in the past, there have been a number of people. Kenneth Bay, I think, is probably the most famous Christian evangelical missionary who was there. But there have been several people, tends to be, I think several of them have been Christian missionaries who went there for an ideological purpose. I think it was Kenneth Bay who left the Bible in the the club. Yeah, left left an English Korean Bible in the club where he was the discotheque club 
Um, not the nuclear club. I said discotheque. I'm pretty cool. That's a remarkably <laughs> 1980s phrase. I'm very cool. Given the uh, the age range of most Vox staffers, <laughs> none of them would have any idea what the hell you were talking about. And I'm about. okay with that. But I think it's also really interesting not to go too far afield of, of the nuclear conversation, but it is a point that I think has been kind of somewhat missed in the conversation about Otto Warmbier and other American citizens. Yes, it's an absolute tragedy, right, what happened to him. You know, no matter what it was that happened, whether it was torture, whether it was some freak accident, I'm pretty sure there was some foul play going on there. But I think it's also really important to make sure that people understand that it's not just American citizens who are being subjected to this. So in North Korea, there are massive political labor camps. They're called uh, Kwanli So. I don't speak Korean, so that's the closest I can get. That's better um, than either Zach or I could possibly have done. <laughs> um, so well played. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Yeah, A plus. Um, but these are, these are political prison camps. These are separate from sort of regular prison camps where common criminals, you know, who are caught stealing or trying to sneak over the border or whatever, um, smuggling, things like that. Those are separate. These are completely political. There's no real trial. There's no judicial process, even a sham one whatsoever. And there are between, I guess, estimated as of 2014, between 80,000 and 120,000 North Koreans in these political camps, um, in these labor camps. And these aren't just nice, cushy prisons, right? These aren't white-collar criminal prisons. These are horrific. I mean, there's rape, forced labor, starvation, marriage and pregnancy are completely forbidden. And what's shocking I think most shocking to me is that most of these people or many of them haven't committed any crime whatsoever. And I don't mean just that they were put in there, but North Korea has this system and it's a Korean word that I absolutely can't pronounce, but it's basically uh, guilt by association. So if you're a political prisoner and you're thrown in, it's not just you, but it's three generations. So it's you, your children, and your grandchildren are all thrown in the prison together. And so I just think it's really important that people understand that they're are a lot of people who are suffering, who are North Koreans, who are never going to get released, no matter what Americans do. That's fascinating. Are there estimates for, you made the point, the distinction between common criminals who are put into horrific camps and then these people punished because their grandfather did something that the regime didn't like. Are there estimates for how many people are in the other kind of camp, the non-political camp? Um, I don't have the estimates offhand, but I know there are between 15 and 20 of those camps, and there are only around four or six of the labor camps. So the labor camps, the political labor camps, seem to be, you know, kind of smaller in terms of number of them, but they are massive. They they tend to have upwards of 50,000 per camp. So there are also these other camps that are like short-term camps. So the the, the criminal camps are called re-education camps, essentially, um, which is like the most Stalin-esque 1984 Orwellian nightmare, which is essentially what North Korea is. Any kind of Orwellian kind of trope that you can think of is actual reality in North Korea, and it's just horrifying. Yeah, I want to—there's something important about that, right? Because we have these mental images of North Korea. There's sort of like at least three of them that are common in the U.S. press, and they seem incompatible. Right. You have this one, this horrific human rights nightmare. Right. Right. You also have scary military threat to the United States and its allies. Those two seem sort of compatible. Right. But then there's a third one, which is the comical, ridiculous press releases where they do things like threaten to, quote unquote, mercilessly destroy Seth Rogen for this bad movie that he made. <laughs> for which many right. critics might say, yeah, yeah, <laughs> seems fair. It was apparently quite bad. But that's funny, right? And we all, or at least a lot of people, laugh at North Korea when it does these sort of ridiculous things. 
But that speaks to maybe a fourth image, which doesn't get picked up as much in the U.S. media, which is that the North Korean state is quite weak, certainly the poorest country ever to possess nuclear weapons. And the regime is founded on strict and brutal repression. That's how it holds on to power. Absolutely. Right? And it does this not because it's a really powerful government that just wants to exercise control over citizens. It does it because it's terrified that a country that had one of the worst famines in modern history in the 90s, that that kind of government might collapse. So you have this weak and ridiculous country at the same time as you have this unbelievably repressive and extremely dangerous on the international stage country. And it's hard to reconcile all these competing images. And in some ways, they're linked. Yeah. Part of the, A question that I'm often asking myself when we're thinking about and, and writing and editing about North Korea, just trying to make sure that we're answering it ourselves, is how does a country that's this poor get this many nuclear weapons with this kind of advanced missile system, which is astoundingly expensive? And the answer is they starve their own people. Right. So, Zach, I think you framed that exactly right, that you've got comical, you've got repressive, you've got starving, and you've got nuclear armed. But what's interesting is a lot of those things are linked. A lot of them flow one to the other, to the other, to the other. Yeah, in the 90s, the famine was in part the result of this exact sequencing that you're describing. After the fall of the Soviet Union, they lost an important patron, sort of international communist alliance thing. And as a result, they had to readjust their policy. And one of the ways of doing that was instituting something called a military first policy, where resources went to the military above all other sorts of programs as a way of preserving the regime's strength and deterrence against the United States and South Korea. And that came at the expense of being able to feed its own people and economic growth. There's actually also, and that's totally right, and I'm really glad you brought up the military first policy and the famine. So when you talk about state repression in in North Korea, it's at a level that it's really kind of hard, I think, for some Americans to even fathom. So the National Police Force keeps files on every single North Korean citizen starting at the age of 17. And they're updated every two years. They're permanent files. And mobile phone conversations. So starting in 2008, there's a mobile phone program in North Korea that started and it's actually become much more widespread. But phone conversations are recorded and transcribed, recorded and filed in your file and checked over to make sure that you're not saying anything. And it's actually fascinating. So in North Korean society, there's something called songbun, which translates to materials or Um, like ingredients, but it basically has to do with your social political class. Um, And there are three kind of broad classes that you're put in, and it's hereditary. There's the core class that's, you know, super loyal to the Kim regime and to the North Korean state. There's the wavering class, which is pretty self-explanatory. And then there's the hostile class. And it's possible for you to move down if you do something wrong, but it's nearly impossible for you to move up. And so that guides everything in life in terms of your job, how much food you get. And so during the famine in the 1990s, a lot of the people who were in the lowest class were actually even hit the hardest because they didn't get food at all, which is stunning. And so because of that, a lot of people actually think that that's starting to kind of loosen some of the class restrictions um, since the famine. But it's really fascinating. And I'm glad you brought up the the Soviet Union um, issue. One of the just minor facts that I think is insane just to let listeners know about is the Soviet Union essentially propped up North Korea, right, in a way that China somewhat does, but into like a much, much bigger degree. So at one point, North Korea decided to try to make a fabric made out of coal, um, like a type of clothing, their coal clothing, and it was one of the most horrifying things you could imagine. And so the Soviets literally used to buy it in bulk and bury it in holes in Siberia. 
to for real? Prop, for real. So they used to buy like North Korean coal clothing. This is the worst Etsy product ever. <laughs> <laughs> 1210 would buy. We're not just talking like they would do deals with them. Like they literally would just buy their shitty products and bury it out in Siberia because it was that worthless. But they wanted to keep it from collapsing because they had, you know, obviously ideological reasons. China right now has much different reasons for wanting North Korea to stay stable, at least somewhat. Essentially, the main reason is that they don't want millions of starving, impoverished North Koreans flooding the border if the regime falls. So when you're talking a bit about hereditary things passed down, father, son, grandfather to father, father to son, that brings us to our second segment, Elsewhere, where this week we'll be talking about Israel. In the Jewish community, you have three hereditary classes. You can be in one, you cannot move to another. In my particular case, I am a Levite, which means I get the honor of literally washing the hands and sometimes the feet of the truly holy Jews, the Kohanim. And I mention all of this because the topic I want us to talk about for elsewhere is what's happening right now in Israel at the Western Wall. The Kotel in Hebrew, this is the holiest site in all of Judaism. This is the last part of the great temple that used to be on what is now the Temple Mount. So it is extraordinarily holy to Muslims. It's holy to Christians. But for Jews, it is the holiest thing that, that Jews have. And it's been the most contested territory in all of Israel for millennia. And the current status quo is the Muslims and a Muslim authority called the Waq control the Temple Mount itself. It's part of sovereign Israel, but it is controlled by a Muslim authority. Much of its funding comes from Jordan. Right. The old city is controlled. The rest of it is controlled by, by Israel. And I want to drill in for a second to the Western Wall. I spent a year studying in a yeshiva, which is a, an Orthodox Jewish school in the old city where it looked out over the Western Wall. And I spent a lot of time there. And on a personal level, I find it very moving. I took my son there when he was 10 weeks old, and we have a photo of him at the wall because the wall matters that much in, in the Jewish faith. But the wall is under the control exclusively of the increasingly ultra side of the Orthodox Jewish spectrum. And what that means is, if you're a man, you can pray at the wall. If you're a woman, you can pray in a very small part of the wall, kind of off, off on the side. But if you're a Reformed Jew, a conservative Jew, which is to say almost all Jews in the world, where most people pray together, men praying with women, husbands with, with wives, mothers and fathers with their children, you can't do that at the Western Wall. There is no space at the wall, which is meant to be a symbol for Jews everywhere, for that kind of Judaism. And you've had negotiations, painful negotiations, for years about whether you could create a space at that wall for both sides, men and women, to pray together. Right. There was a deal. It was reached. It was struck. It was supposed to take effect, and it didn't. And that's what I'd like us to talk about. And before we do, I want to just read you a quote because it gives you a sense of the passion with which many on the right wing of Israel, the ultra-Orthodox and the political right wing, what they see of it. So this was the tone of a statement after this deal was canceled. And again, the cancellation means Jews cannot pray together. Men in one place can, women in one place can, but not mixed. This was the quote. It took time, but we have succeeded in persuading the government to cancel this disastrous deal, which damaged the Kotel and permanently damaged the Jewish status quo. It's not subtle. This was from a right-wing settler leader kind of celebrating what happened. And it is really striking so, that this is what happened. So as someone myself, I know a lot less about the detailed Judaism side. So when he says the Jewish status quo, like what is, I'm assuming it's a he. Uh, it's you ultra, are assuming correctly. Ultra-Orthodox who's giving a statement. I'm guessing it's a dude. Um, what, what does he mean by that, the Jewish status quo in terms of the wall? Is he talking about 
Jews being able to pray there? Is he talking about the men and women yeah, kind of a, division? It, it's the men and women thing. Okay. It's it's about Jews like me, Reformed Jews, not being treated as equal Jews okay. for the purposes of being able to pray in the way that we'd like at the Western Wall. And it speaks to the fact that there's in the structure of the Israeli government a kind of hierarchy of Judaisms that Yochi was just talking about. Because there's a chief rabbinate in Israel and the chief rabbinate's dominated by the Orthodox, certain other denominations don't just do not have the same rights and privileges in the Jewish state that the Orthodox do in terms of their ideas and their vision of Judaism being recognized by the official government. You know, marriage courts are controlled by the Orthodox. So Israel doesn't have marriage equality for this reason, despite the fact that some 80% of Israelis, and roughly in one poll I saw recently, favored it. So Israeli gay couples have to go to another country, get married, and then get their marriage recognized by the Israeli government. But it's not officially recognized as a marriage. It's something else. So you can still get the privileges of marriage, kind of like a civil union arrangement, but you can't do it inside Israel. Even though, again, the fact that it's widely popular to legalize this, it speaks to the degree of stranglehold that a very small subset of the Israeli religious right has over the government itself. So where does that stranglehold come from? What is the base of their power? Because just as someone who observes Israeli politics kind of from afar, um, I've been there once, but I always seem to see that there also tends to be, from what I can tell, conflict within Israel with the ultra-Orthodox. So there are a lot of Israelis, and it seems to be, you know, there's the issue over serving in the military. It seems like there's often a lot of conflict. So w- what is that stranglehold? How do they such a small kind of, I assume they're a small percentage? Small-ish, but growing really rapidly because it's common for these families to have 8, 10, 12, 13 children. I was once, when I was was much younger, I'm a geezer now, so we're talking way back in the past. (laughs) Very old. uh, Before podcasts were even a glimmer in the eye of Steve Jobs. (laughs) Or the wheel. Or the wheel or fire. But I had a teacher who had 13 children, and her oldest daughter had a child older than the teacher's younger daughter. So there's going to be some weird therapy in in the future in that family when your child and your daughter's child are roughly the same age. But it comes from politics. And I think when we think of Israel, we don't often think of it as a, a relatively fragile country politically. The prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been prime minister longer at this point than anyone in the history of Israel. He shows no signs of stepping down. He's close to Donald Trump. He despised Barack Obama. So he feels like he's in a relatively good place. But his government is not strong. Israel is a parliamentary system. You don't directly elect a leader like you do here. And if you don't have a majority of 61 seats in the Israeli parliament, your government falls. Netanyahu doesn't have that without the religious parties. So to the question of why do they have the power they do, it's because absent their votes, his government falls. And it's worth noting here that this isn't an issue just within Israel. It's an issue within the question of Jews everywhere. Because Israel's political power in the U.S. depends on having a very active Jewish community here that advocates for its causes, that donates money for its causes. That's true in parts of Europe also. And when you make this kind of move, Zach, I think you nailed it exactly. It's not just that you have 80% of Israelis who oppose the chief rabbinate. You have a big chunk of Jews outside of Israel who look at this and are thinking, wait a minute, I can't go? My wife and I can't go pray at this this really holy site. And so it has the damage in Israel, and then it also has the damage outside of Israel. Right, because Israel is supposed to be not just a state for Israelis, but a state for Jews, right? It's always had these complicated, different, intersecting domestic identities, even before we get to the issue of Arabs and Palestinians, when we're just talking about divisions inside Jews in the international Jewish community. Eventually, some vision 
of what qualifies as the right or acceptable Judaism will have to prevail in a state that makes being Jewish and not just Israeli as a secular identity the core part of its mission in the world. And since the state's founding, that has meant privileging the Orthodox early on. In fact, they were given a lot of concessions in terms of religious control over the state back in the 40s in order to ensure that they would buy on to the Israeli national project, which wasn't always, again, as set as people thought it was now. So it's it goes back to the issue of who cared more about it. And early on, you know, Israel's founders cared a lot about the stability of the government. And they gave concessions to the Orthodox to ensure that the Israeli state would continue to function well and survive. Those concessions have bled into that vision of Judaism, that very specific religious identity dominating over more pluralistic ones. So are these these ultra-Orthodox Jews that have this political power in Israel, how do they relate to the the Israeli right-wing kind of push for settlements. Is is there a direct correlation, or is that a different group of people? That's where you sort of have to divvy up the pool of ultra-Orthodox. Yeah, it's real real tricky, real fast. But it's a good question, and and the the kind of short answer of it is you have the one pool who are Zionistic, monorthodox, for whom all of the West Bank belongs to Jews, that it has holy sites. It's been in the past biblically part of Israel, part of a previous Jewish state. Like so Naftali Bennett. Exactly. So Naftali right. Bennett, who's the, the head of a party called the Israel Home Party, uh, and was seen for a while as a rival to Netanyahu. So that wing settles. So when people hear the word settler and hear religious settler, it's those. Okay. Then you have separately black hat wearing Jews. Right. For whom often they don't even recognize the existence of the state of Israel. They live there, but they don't recognize the government. They believe that the state of Israel can only take effect if there is a divinely given government and this government being corrupt <laughs> and, and run by somebody who... In the case of Benjamin Netanyahu, we can safely say is not a prophet given down by by God above. I feel like that's safe to say. I feel like that's safe Considering to say. he might be losing his job soon. Because of corruption, which is, yeah. which is remarkable. Yeah. But our, our colleague, uh, Sarah Wildman, has a very good piece up on, on Vox.com now, which has a, a quote that kind of drives home to the point Zach you were making before about this fundamental question of, of what is a Jew and what relationship should the world Jewish community have with the state of Israel. And this is from Michael Oren, who is the ambassador of Israel to the United States until fairly recently, someone that was very friendly to the press. So we were always, as reporters, grateful for for that. Somebody personally who I spent quite a bit of time with. He was this sort of terrifyingly brilliant man who went to Princeton, served as as an Israeli paratrooper, has a doctorate, has written a lot of books on on history. But this was his quote after this decision. And again, the decision we're talking about is to, to ban joint prayer, men and women praying together. And he wrote, This decision, again, speaking of it, is an abandonment of Zionism. The Western Wall belongs to all Jews. This despicable decision sends a sharp sharp message, excuse me, of division and alienation to diaspora Jewry. And that's weighty. It definitely does. But so do the longstanding policies of the state on this issue, right? So in my personal case, because my mother was Jewish and my grandmother was Jewish, I could make Aliyah immigrate to Israel whenever I wanted. But my fiance is converting right now in the United States. She's converting with a reform rabbi. I don't think under Israeli immigration laws she would be able to go. Since she did her conversion with a reform rabbi, you need to do an orthodox conversion to qualify as Jewish. The point is that it's even setting boundaries around who gets to be a new Jew internationally in the eyes of the state. And I think where that also plays out, just circling it back a little bit to the United States, Israel is becoming a partisan issue, which for many people on both sides of the Israeli debate is somewhat scary. This is an issue where the Israeli government is increasingly identified with the Republican Party, 
Benjamin Netanyahu openly favored Donald Trump over uh, Barack Obama. He very famously came to Washington and spoke to Congress at the request of the Republicans in Congress to bash Obama while Obama was president negotiating a nuclear deal. So y'all remember foreign, how the Democrats felt about that, right? A foreign leader being brought to speak to Congress. It was kind of an amazing thing. But what's become and what's becoming more and more apparent is Republicans are the party of Israel. Democrats increasingly have concerns about Israel's policies towards the occupation, towards the Iran deal. And, and so you have to divide there. You have to divide, in, meaning within Israel, you have to divide between Israel and Jews around the world. And you have to divide between Israel as a political issue in the United States, where it's for a long time had an emotional resonance for a country that is so small, has no oil, brings a lot of anti-American sentiment the world over. America has, for the most part, been very staunchly pro-Israel. And that's changing. You're seeing a division that was never there before. And I think as we're talking about it and thinking about it, this isn't a story just about a wall in Israel. This is a story about what happens to Israel as an issue politically here at home. I think it's interesting to kind of maybe dig in a little bit deeper there. I'm interested in kind of talking about why the right in in the United States and why the Republican Party specifically has suddenly, gradually rather, um, become more associated with Israel. And I wonder how much of that is connected to the evangelical kind of Christian base there. And I'm also interested because I do know, you know, there are plenty of Democratic politicians, you know, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, who have gotten support from from wealthy Israeli donor Sohaim Saban. Full disclosure, I used to work at the Saban Center. But, Brookings, actually, but, be careful to notice uh, wealthy American Jewish donors. American Jewish donors. Uh, this, sorry. These were not getting. They were not getting money right, from right, Israeli yes, donors. Right. Yes. Sorry. Uh, Pro-Israel donors, not not Israeli. Yes. Haim Saban um, is American. He also used to be in a band. I highly recommend you look up the band on YouTube because it is hilarious. I do know that like there are a lot of Democratic politicians who have support from very staunchly pro-Israel American Jews. So so I'm kind of interested in digging in why you guys think specifically like the right has claimed the mantle of being pro-Israel while even Democratic politicians have given, you know, massive arms deals and, you know, things like that to Israel. Well, it's part evangelical, as you said, right? Like evangelicals weren't a huge influence on the Republican Party until the 70s and really the 80s, right? And since then, the movement has, for scriptural reasons, become more interested in Israel and more connected to the idea of supporting a Jewish state. Being evangelical has become the default Republican identity in a lot of ways. But it's also the 9-11 attacks and the rise of neoconservatism as a dominant view inside the Republican Party. Because after 9-11, confronting Islamist extremism became the raison d'etre of the Republican right. That goes French. I have to in this case. Freedom fries. (laughs) Really going back into the early 2000s here. Love it. But they see Israel as an ally in that fight. They see them as not just a like— concrete, we share intelligence, you know, we kill the same guys, right? It's that they're an ideological ally. They're another power who has made fighting this kind of movement a central part of its international struggle. They share the same concerns that we do. They have the same threats that we do. Why shouldn't we be close with them? And Netanyahu's played that up, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, big time. I mean, I think he's phrased it a few times as, you know, this is like a a fight against barbarism and, you know, Yeah, his favorite phrase is moral clarity. And Republicans have picked that up a lot when they talk about terrorism and fighting Islamism. And Netanyahu spent a lot of time in the United States. He worked here for a while and worked with Mitt Romney, actually. And he really 
he knows the American conservative movement. He knows it really well and has made a conscious choice to steer the Israeli right to connect with it. It is worth noting Israel is a democratic state. So part of it, Zach, I agree with you. There's the sort of shared fight against Islamist extremism. There's also, and Republicans and Democrats also talk about, this is the only democratic state in the Middle East, and therefore we should have a connection to it. Netanyahu, my Tunisia favorite- Tunisia is a democracy now. Ish. My, my, uh, my favorite Netanyahu-ism, because it was a sign that he really does try to understand Donald Trump, was the emojis he sent before Donald Trump visited Israel. He had a an emoji of an American flag, an Israeli flag, and I think of champagne popping. Uh, watching two men in their late 60s and early 70s communicate over emojis with Twitter it's it's really trying so hard. It's a it's a it's a beautiful thing, <laughs> and I think we'll we'll close it there. Zach, thank you, and, and Jen, thank you, and to those of you who are out there listening, please subscribe, please rate, please review. That's the way that others can find us as well. Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud. Come to our site. Come to Vox on Facebook. Come to Vox on Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to build this community even bigger. So please help us do that. Go to all the things. Go to the things. Go on the internet. Rate them. Listen to them. It's fun. Want to end with a thank you to our producer, Peter Leonard. And otherwise, have a great 4th of July weekend. And we'll talk to you all next week. And Canada Day. Saturday's Canada Day.